I'm Richard Hollingham. Welcome to the Planet Earth podcast from the United Kingdom's most easterly point, Lowestoft, where we'll be contemplating the colour of the North Sea. Also this time, the secrets revealed by volcanic dust. Every glass from a single eruption has one composition, one chemical composition, which is frozen at the time of the explosion. And that composition acts like a fingerprint. Growing up in East Anglia, I spent much of my holidays on North Sea beaches in biting wind like this. And the water, well, it's never looked that inviting. Here on the beach at Lower Stoft, and to be fair, a fairly clear sky, the North Sea just looks brown, slopping against the sandy beach here. But even the clearest seawater is teeming with microscopic life. And that's what Katie Owen from the University of East Anglia is studying. You're looking at phytoplankton. Now, what is a phytoplankton? Phytoplankton, you have to think of them a little bit like the grass of the sea. They're tiny, microscopic plants, sort of thinner in diameter than a strand of human hair. And you find them everywhere in seas and oceans around the world, hot, cold water. They're tiny little powerhouses. They photosynthesize and in doing so remove um, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and convert it into organic carbon as part of their bodies. So they're really the base of the food chain in the sea? Exactly right, yeah. They underpin everything. Um, They're eaten by things as varied as crab larvae, uh, bacteria, all the way up to fishes and whales. Huge, huge range of animals eat them. Okay, well, let's get a bit closer to the water. And we're not going to be able to see them, presumably, are we? No, no, they're very small in diameter, really, really thin, thinner than a sheet of cling film. So you can't see them with a naked eye at all. Let me just get a handful of water then. Whoa! <laughs> so I've got a handful of water and wet feet. How many plankton are there in there? Is that, is that really just full of plankton? It's absolutely teeming. Um, you can have as many as sort of 20,000 um, individual cells in just a mill of water. So huge quantities in a very small amount of volume. And you're interested in this not just because it's important for the food chain, but its role in the global climate. Exactly right. Um, because they photosynthesize, it's, it's really key. They remove this carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they take it out, out of circulation. They incorporate it into their bodies. And then as they die or are eaten by something else in the food web, that carbon is recycled or it's taken to the deep ocean. So it's out of the way, it's removed. So it's a really good way of reducing carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. Are they then an underappreciated sink, if you like, for carbon? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, if you think about all of the publicity that the rainforests get, which do a similar role, but um, obviously trees are much more obvious. I mean, you can take a quick glance and have a look at what's going on with an ecosystem on land. You can see the state of the grass, you can see the state of the forest, but phytoplankton, you look at the sea and you have no idea what's going on with them. So it's really important that we understand a little bit more about them. So what are you doing? Before I ask that question, let's just move a little further away from the waves. Uh, Let me ask that question again. What are you doing? I use a machine called a flow cytometer, um, which is borrowed from biomedical research. Normally it's used to scan blood cells, but um, I'm applying it to marine science and using it to count these phytoplankton. Why? What, what What are you trying to find out? Everything, really. We know very little about them. Because they're so small, it's only really recently with the development of this machine that we've been able to count them properly. In the past, you know, since the Victorian times, we've looked down microscopes to count them. But obviously, that's limited to what you can see with a human eye. If you do it electronically with a machine, you can count them much more accurately. Um, You can count a much larger size range and you can count them a lot faster. 
So using this machine, it's going to give you a really sort of detailed image of what's going on with phytoplankton, you know, where they're most abundant, what makes them tick, what nutrient conditions they prefer, everything like that. And I suppose that'll give us a, a better handle on where the carbon is going, how it's moving around. Exactly. It's all to do with carbon cycling. I mean, that's what's so important. We need to know whether it's all small cells, uh, which are more likely to be recycled within the surface waters, or perhaps it's you know concentrated in larger cells, which are more likely to sink through the water column and be deposited in the deep ocean. And we might not see that carbon again unless there's some kind of storm event. It could be hundreds of years. Well, let's get out of the, the wind here to your laboratory, which is up there on the cliff. Sure. Why not? Well, here we are in the Molecular Biology Laboratory at CFAS. CFAS? The Centre for Environment, Fisheries and Aquaculture Science. And you have, rather helpfully, some flasks of phytoplankton. And this looks completely green. And this is presumably very concentrated. This is a very concentrated culture. This is um, some cells that we grow here in the lab just for testing purposes. And you can see how dense that is. And normally you wouldn't get that concentration in a natural sample. Here's one that I collected from the North Sea last week. And you can see that it is more of that typical North Sea colour. That's really just an opaque (laughs) brownish colour, yes. Yeah, a lot of that will be sediment, but it has been concentrated. And there are quite a lot of phytoplankton cells in there as well. So this one here, this almost totally green one that looks almost like a rather nasty synthetic limeade, that's a plant, essentially, a plant in water, lots of plants in water. Lots of tiny microscopic plants all, all together in, um, in, in the special media that we use to grow them. So there's so many of them because we enhance it with sort of the special vitamins that they need to sort of grow happily. And, and next to them on the laboratory bench is this curious-looking machine. It's about the size of a... A beer barrel, I suppose, but with the outside exposed and it's full of circuit boards and tubes. It, it does look almost a device out of a, a science fiction film. Yeah, I get that a lot, actually. Um, it's not normally like this when I take it to sea. It's out of its protective casing um, now that I'm here in the lab. But it's, it looks horrible. It looks really horribly complicated, but it's actually quite a simple principle. It's a machine it uses as a pump, and we pump water, a stream of water, a stream of seawater, through the path of a laser beam and as the laser beam hits anything in that seawater such as debris or hopefully phytoplankton cells that laser light is scattered and we collect that information which gives us um, a lot of details on the size and the shape and the structure and also the pigment content of the phytoplankton cells. So of individual phytoplankton so you can count them but you can also see the the size and the shape of them. Yeah that's right yeah something that um, we've been doing for a little while now here at CFAS. Traditionally, CFAS is a great place for phytoplankton taxonomy. We have a whole lab which is dedicated to counting phytoplankton cells by light microscope, which is, as I mentioned earlier, something that we've done for hundreds of years now. But the problem with that is that it only covers a very small range of sizes, things that we call the nano and the net plankton, which are from 20 to 200 microns. But there's a real whole wealth of phytoplankton below that size range, something called the picoplankton, which are less than 3 microns. So, you know, we're talking a fraction, fraction of the size of a human hair follicle. And you can't see them with a light microscope. And they're just, just too small to be counted or identified accurately. So this machine is not only capable of measuring them, we can also approximately identify them and um, do thousands of these cells within a few minutes. And so these picoplankton, have they been overlooked, do you think? Yes, definitely. I mean, we know very little about them within the North Sea just because they're so hard to count. We only really discovered that they existed about 20 years ago in the the 1980s, the end of the 1980s, um, and we're still discovering new species. 
In fact, this machine here, not this one exactly, but a machine like this, discovered what is now a hugely important species called Senecococcus and Prochlorococcus, which we just didn't know existed, and now is essentially vital in carbon cycling. So are phytoplankton something we should all learn to appreciate a lot more? Definitely. I mean, I find them fascinating, but, you know, I'm probably slightly biased. But I find it amazing that things that are so small and so tiny, um, we know just so little about. They're so important. I mean, we sail on them, we swim amongst them every day, but we know very little information about them. So I think it's really key that they become more appreciated and loved a little bit more. Katie Owen, thank you very much. This is the Planet Earth podcast. You can see some photos of Katie and the beach here at Lower Stoft on our Facebook page. And for the latest news and features on the science of the natural world, do visit Planet Earth online. To find both, search for Planet Earth online. When a volcano explodes, it ejects material known as tephra. Now, this can range from rocks the size of cars to the smallest particles of ash. This ash can travel thousands of miles, forming an invisible layer on the landscape. But by studying these microscopic grains, scientists can date archaeological sites, and this can help clarify the effects of environmental and climatic change, or even determine, get this, the movement of the human population within the last 100,000 years. Well, Sue Nelson met up with Dr Christine Lane and Victoria Cullen at the University of Oxford's Research Laboratory for Archaeology to find out more, as they both work on the RESET project, which is investigating the response of humans to abrupt environmental transitions. These are some samples that I collected in the fields from various places, which are from close to volcanic sources, so a bit different to what we look at normally. In this bag, I've got two samples from Lipari, which is one of the Aeolian islands from Italy. And one of them is a pumice, a bit like you'd use in the bath, very light rock, full of air. Oh, yes, it, it's incredibly light, and it's got that rough, scaly feel that you know you want to put on some hard skin. Oh, and this is and, black and shiny. Yeah, this rock is what we call an obsidian, and it's actually made of exactly the same material as this pumice. It's glass, but it's um, got no air bubbles in it. So it's really heavy and it's much denser. So even though the cast is about the same size, you'll feel that that's much heavier rock. So they're exactly the same? Yeah, the composition is exactly the same. They're both formed from the uh, magma from the eruption. One flows out of the volcano and cools very quickly, which creates a glass. And one is erupted with a lot of gas in the eruption, which causes a very explosive eruption. So it's full of bubbles. All of these examples were found fairly close to the volcano itself. But what we're looking at in the lab here... It's the same material, but it's travelled maybe thousands, up to maybe three to 5,000 kilometres from the source. So what we're looking at now is volcanic ash rather than pumices. So it's, again, it's the same material, just much smaller. And you can see it looks much more like dust, just particles of dust or very small grains, like sand-sized grains. And do you have a specific name for this sort of scale, this size of ash, don't you? All material erupted from a volcano, when it's erupted explosively, we call tephra. And tephra is actually the Greek word for ash. So we use the word tephra generally when we're talking about this material, in particular when it's travelled a long way from the volcano. Victoria, you're going to show me, aren't you, exactly what that looks like? As Christine says, it's actually glass. And if you can imagine when you break a glass in your house, it fractures in very distinct ways, very sharp edges. And in some locations, you get these bubbles as well, which are also kept within these glass shards. So if I get some slides out for you now, we can actually look at what it looks like down a microscope. Here we go. If I get you to look down there, and you can see some very pinky, purpley-looking shards of glass. 
Do you know what? It reminds me of a child's kaleidoscope. Yeah, very much. <laughs> it's quite mesmerising because it's, it's so pretty. It? Yeah. If you were to find this in an archaeological or environmental site, you wouldn't actually be able to see it physically looking at the site. It's invisible to the naked eye. So this is why it's called cryptotephra or hidden secret tephra, also known as microtephra. So when we look at certain sites, because it's travelled so far, it's so fine, it's so small, when it's deposited, it's just invisible to the naked eye. So we have to take samples down these sites, take them into a laboratory, process the samples, and then we come onto a microscope and actually look if tephra is there in the first place. So now that we know, obviously, that we've got tephra, because these are samples where you know they've got them, where do you go from here? We take them down to the microprobe and we analyse them for their chemistry. Every glass from a single eruption has one composition, one chemical composition, which is frozen at the time of the explosion. And that composition acts like a fingerprint. So we can identify from a tephra, the composition of a tephra shard, which eruption it came from. This looks like a sort of giant microscope, effectively, more than a metre high, but with computer screens on either side and, and a console. Yes, this is our electron microprobe. It is like a giant microscope, but it works at much higher resolutions, much smaller sizes. But it also has four different what we call spectrometers, and these are effectively the detectors that record the composition of the material we put in there. OK, if I just choose a little grain to focus in on, we can now, um, on the computer console, we can have a look at that here. And it looks quite complicated because there's a lot of different columns on it. But the one we want to look at is this column here, which is the weight percent oxide. Um, and this tells us for each element... Um, I can see so there that it's sodium, magnesium, aluminium, silicon. These are all in ash. Yeah, these are just the what we call the major and minor elements. So these are the main constituents of this ash. There are other elements, trace elements in there, but we can't analyse those on this machine. But usually with, in this case, 9 or 11 elements, we can fairly well characterise our eruption. So you can see that the greatest composition is silica. They're silicate min- um, materials, like all volcanic rocks. So silica, aluminium, sodium iron and potassium and sometimes calcium are the main elements that we're measuring. There's one I don't quite recognise, TI? That's titanium. It is titanium. Yeah, titanium oxide. So some volcanic centres, such as Icelandic ones, have quite a lot of titanium oxide in their systems. And what can you actually learn from analysing these bits of ash, this tephra? We're looking in records where we have a story already. So we might have um, an archaeological site which tells a story of what the population in that site have been doing when they've been there, what sort of um, behaviour they've been doing, what tools they've been making. Or we might be working in environmental records, so sediments accumulated in the bottom of a lake over time, which record changes in vegetation or the landscape around the lake basin. And by finding these tephra layers or the same tephra layers in different sites, we can link up those records. So where we have a population in a cave and we find evidence for them just below a tephra layer, if we find the same tephra layer in a lake record that tells us what the climate was doing at the time that eruption took place, we can infer that that was also that the climate at the time of that hominin population was there. So we're using them as marker layers to transfer climatic and environmental information between sites. Victoria, you're, you're looking at the same type of ash, the same tephra, but slightly further afield. What I'm trying to do with my research is to use these tephra layers to look at sites in a specific region in the Caucasus, so that's Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, a small part of southern Russia and the Ossetias. And it's just between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, that little landmass there. And what we're finding from these sites there is that sites that have been redated using radiocarbon 
um, are now showing that the coexistence of these two species isn't as much as we had previously thought. So what I'm trying to do is use these tephras to try and test that further. Because we can look at different sites in the same region on one time level with these tephras, I can see, well, first of all, uh, people or hominids occupying the same space at the same time. So I might find one tephra layer in an upper Paleolithic cave site, and then in another upper Paleolithic cave site I might not find that. Now, is that because it's not getting into there, or is that because there's actually different times when people are exploiting this landscape? So I'm trying to build up a picture about how people move around this landscape, and it actually, can we prove that these two species co-inhabited the same space in the same time in this one region? So does the ash help with everything else, be it archaeological, radiocarbon dating, what have you? Does it, is it act as sort of an extra test, in a way, in terms of learning whether different species coexisted? Yeah. So the wondrous thing about tephracanology, this ash dating, is the fact it's a blanket of time. So we can look at sites across a massive geographical region, and including environmental sites, on one plane of time and see what was happening at that one time across, say, Europe, for example. So if I find an ash in one cave site and then find the same ash in another cave site, I know that was deposited at the same time. So then I can look at the archaeology in both sites and actually start to directly compare them. And whether that's coexistence or not, that's where the questions come from. Victoria Cullen and Dr Christine Lane from the University of Oxford talking to Sue Nelson. And we'll put some pictures of Christine and Victoria on our Facebook page. Meanwhile, right now on Planet Earth Online, you can read about the engineering that goes into orangutan nests and discover how many emperor penguins there are in Antarctica, among other things. And that's the Planet Earth podcast. It's produced for the Natural Environment Research Council. I'm Richard Hollingham. Thanks for listening.